This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. First John 5, 1-5 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. It's great to see everyone. I'm always excited to come up and share with you from God's word, but this morning, honestly, I'm especially excited. And the reason I'm especially excited is because this week, as I was studying and preparing for this passage to preach and share with you all, the book of 1 John came together to me in a way that it never has. Uh, this, this, this week, uh, in these five verses, uh, I realize in a new way, in a deeper way, what it actually is that John is doing. I'm a dad of two girls, and my oldest daughter is five, and I've learned a little bit in the past year or so about braids, right, in the hair. So I'm still working on ponytails. I think I almost have that down. I haven't tried the braid thing, but I'm watching And as I watched Leah, my wife, put a braid into her hair, at least the simpler ones, there are three strands of hair, right? But it's not arbitrary. Like, I may grab one here and here and here, but it matters where you take this hair from. And it matters that there's uh, something like an equal amount of hair in each strand. But the point is, is you take these strands from meaningful places and you start to braid them together. And in the midst of it, about halfway in, you can kind of get confused because you're doing the same thing over and over and over. And you get lost in that reality. But then when it's done, you zoom out, you see that it's, it's so intricate, it's so connected. What seems so simple is hard to distinguish from one another. So you have these distinct strands, but then you have this unique and beautiful braid. And essentially, that's exactly what John has been doing through the entire book. He's writing to these Christians who are confused about what it might mean to be a Christian. They're doubting. And he's given them over and over three strands or three truths for them to apply to their life to answer the question, am I a Christian? And he keeps weaving them in and out until here, he doesn't just talk about the effects of the strand. He brings them all together and he finally reveals their synthetic reality. They're not arbitrary. He doesn't just put them together. They belong together. And when they're together, they're distinct, but so intricate, it's very impressive, just like a braid. And those three things have been love for God and others, obedience to God, and faith in Jesus as the Christ. Faith, obedience, And love for others have been three things that John has weaved all throughout. And we see them here in verse five. I'm sorry, verses one through five. The word believe and faith occurs in verses one, verse four, and verse five. Love in verse one, two, and three. And the need to obey God's commands in verse two and three. So they're all here. 
And John puts them together and he uses a family analogy and he says, basically, here's the deal. If you're children of God, then that means you were born of God. You're in the family. And God's family has lots of children. So if you're in the family by believing in Jesus and other people are in the family, then you gotta love the father and you gotta love the kids, right? It's logical, it flows, it makes sense to us. But I don't want us to miss the link that brings these strands together. I don't want us to miss that. And this is the link. We cannot miss this. I, almost, I wanted to preach a whole sermon on this reality, but I don't have time. But I want us to see that the link that holds this together is the new birth. That is what holds this together. So it's logical, the family analogy, and we talked some about that last week, and John is using it. But we can't miss the real link between obedience, love for God and others, and faith in Christ. And that is the new birth. Faith Love and obedience are all the natural growth which follows from a birth from above. I'm gonna show that to you in a second, but today I wanna tell you what we're gonna do. I wanna trace John's seamless threads. I wanna take a look at this braid, his thesis that he's given us throughout the entire book. And I wanna do this for a specific reason. I wanna do this because I'm afraid, like John, that Christianity so easily comes to us, maybe say it this way, we so easily fall into the view of Christianity that says it's really about a self-improvement project that's fueled by willpower, right? How does that happen? Well, we, we just pick up on one of the strands, even though they're not meant to be apart, we do take it apart. And we say, okay, love for others. I'm doing really bad at that. That love for others thing, yeah, I need to bite my tongue more. I need to say nicer things, or maybe I should just be quieter, or maybe I should try harder, and we separate the strand from, from the whole reality. Or what we do is we say, well, really what my issue is is disobedience in this area of my life. And if I can just zoom in and focus in on that and try really hard, then I can figure this out. And it becomes all about our own self-will. It becomes about willpower. And that's what we turn Christianity into. But really, we know it's not just Christians who do this. It's everybody who does this. I mean, everybody has a standard. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. You have a standard and you believe that's the way that you ought to live. And when you fail your own standard, you go into this self-improvement project, don't you? And you figure out how to, how to conjure up willpower and figure it out and get it done. It's all about doing the stuff now. If I can just have a list and check a box and do the stuff, then I'm okay. And that's oftentimes what we turn Christianity into. But John will not let us do this because he shows us that the source of change is not willpower. The source of change is the new birth. So before, this is how I'm gonna do it. This is how I'm gonna walk us through. I know I'm gonna be frustrated because my mind and heart were exploding this week and I just can't take it out and give it to you. So I gotta try to put it in a logical, logical form, which sometimes can be hard to do, but we're gonna try and this is how I'm gonna do it, Okay. The first thing is I'm gonna show a preliminary assumption that John is making and then I'm gonna make two observations, okay? Preliminary assumption and two observations. So here's the preliminary assumption. The preliminary assumption is this. Believing in Christ is a result of the new birth from above. Look in verse one. The beginning of chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We'll just stop there for now. Okay, this is where grammar matters. This is where we gotta slow down and read this. Everyone who believes, that's present tense. If you are believing, that's you. Everyone who believes, what? That Jesus is the Christ, 
has been born of God. Has been is perfect past. It's in the past. There was an event in the past called new birth, called born of God. And if you are now believing that happened to you, if you believe right now that happened to you. So you see new birth precedes believing. And that is crucial for John's point in verses one through five. He's assumed it the whole time. And right now he's making it explicit, but it's really easy to jump over. So we have to understand that's his assumption. His grammar matters. If you now believe you have been born again at some time before. So to say it another way, faith and the new birth are distinct yet connected. One comes before the other. Saving faith does not come about by mere moral persuasion. That's not how you came to have faith in Christ. It wasn't mere moral persuasion. God opened the eyes of your heart and you believe. Listen to John in his gospel, chapter one, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you believe in Jesus, God opened the eyes of your heart. That's what happened. If my children are to believe in Jesus, it's not my moral persuasion that will make that happen. It is the fact that God will open the eyes of their heart. And that's true for all of us. So that's his assumption. Up to this point, John has spoken much of love and obedience, but now he's moving towards faith, okay? John, in this book, talks about believing or faith 10 times in the whole book. And seven of those times happen in chapter five. So 70% of the time, he's talking about belief and faith happen towards the end. As he's bringing it together, he's been making this braid and he zooms out and that's where we are. And he's talking about believing. So when asked why we believe, John would not say, because your personality disposes you to believing. John would not say because you were smart or because you were born in this culture. He would say because God opened the eyes of your heart and you were born from above. That's why you believe Jesus is the Christ. And that's his assumption. Now, two observations out of that assumption, all right? The new birth will produce a double love and a single hope. The new birth will give you a double love and a single hope. So first, the double love of the new birth is love for God and sibling, okay? So John has been making the connection between love for God and love for brothers and sisters in Christ the entire book, and now he's elaborating on the essential connection between this double love, love of God and love of brother and sister. It's a double love. It's always together. He's been talking a lot about Listen, if you love God, you will love your brothers. And if you love your brothers, you will love God. And if it breaks down in any point, you don't love either. That's the point he's been making. Look in the second part now of verse one. Everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. So that's the point where he's saying, if you are a child of God, there are other children of God and the children should love each other. That's what he's saying. John says it, It's right and good that not only do children of God love God, but they love all of God's other children as well. And then in verse two and three, he gives ways to know if we're truly loving God and our siblings. And that's that's classic John, right? John tells us something, and then he tells us how we can know that thing. 
This is what he does. So let's read verses two and three. Two first, okay? By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. I don't know if you got, if, was anyone caught off guard? Like when I read that, I was caught off guard. It seems different than the flow of 1 John. Then I'm thinking, okay, so you're giving me a test of how I know if I'm loving people well. And then you tell me, you don't tell me uh, rules to follow. You don't, necessarily, you don't say, this is loving people well. And then you give me a list. You say, this is loving people well. Do you love God and keep his commandments? And if so, that's how you know you're loving people well. How does that work? How does loving God's children fit with loving him and obeying his commandments? I had to think on this for a while. And then I saw it, and then I thought, well, how am I gonna say that? This is it. Obeying God's commandments in scripture is the way to love the children of God because God's commandments show believers the true way to love others. It was there the whole time. I don't know why it took me so long. This is how Paul says it. Romans chapter 13. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Paul sums up the commandments. Galatians 5, he does it again. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the point that John is making. You and I do not get to define what love is for other people. We just don't get to. So John is saying, how do you know if you love God? Well, I don't know. It feels like I'm loving people. I have a general warm sense towards this person. Well, what if you don't have a general warm sense towards this person? Can you still love them? Well, do you get to define love? That's always a good question. How am I defining love? I'll tell you this. I probably ought not, and you probably ought not, go to romantic comedies to define love for us. Uh, Pop music lyrics, even old good ones like from the Beatles. All you need is love, love, love. Love is all you need. What does that even mean? No one knows what that means. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. No one knows what it means. So when I'm sitting across from my wife is what John is saying when I'm on a date with Leah, my wife, and I'm looking into her eyes and I'm trying to express my love for her, should I just quote the Ten Commandments and say, baby, you shall not commit adultery. (laughs) Uh, Don't covet. Well, not really, but kind of, right? Not really, but kind of. The point is, how do I know love? Well, God tells me what love is. We don't define love. In our current culture, if we decided to go that way and define love that way, what we would do automatically without regard for any moral obedience, we would just empty love of any requirement. Ted talked about this last week, I think, or the week before. We would, we would empty love of any requirement. There would be no sacrifice in love if we were to define it. And the scary thing about that is that we actually may find ourselves excusing disobedience to God, excusing it because we have a general warm feeling still towards him. Because if we define love, we define God, don't we? If we define love, we get to define who God is. And we make God in our own image and we make God in the image of our culture and the image of our time. And John is saying, you wanna know if you're loving your brother, loving your siblings, it's directly connected. Are you loving God and keeping his commandments? Because God is the one who defines love. 
As I was thinking about this, I was convicted that I so often fall into the cultural value in our day that if something feels good, it is good. If something feels right, it is right. But to John, it makes no sense that you would break the revealed will of God and still say you're loving him. Or you would break the revealed will of God and say you're loving your sibling in Christ. So in verse two, that's the connection between love of the children of God and love of God and keeping his commandments. So ultimately, to grow in our love for others, we must grow in our love for God. And when I say that, I know it sounds abstract. When I say, you wanna know how to grow in your love for people? And you say, and then I say to you, you gotta love God more. That just sounds abstract, doesn't it? Not entirely helpful. But I don't think it's abstract in John's mind. Not when he says it. It's not abstract. Look at the connection here in verse three. So this is a double love. Remember that. It's a double love. It's for God and neighbor, God and brother, specifically Christians in, in this book in First John, brothers and sisters, members of the family. And in verse three, it starts with the word for or because. So now he's gonna start giving us his logic. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments because this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So stop there for a second. He's not done, but I know what some of us might be thinking. So are you telling me to love God and it's gotta do the stuff? Like God gives me stuff and then I do it. And then when I don't do it, I try harder and keep doing it. And then maybe I love God and maybe he'll think I love him. I am so thankful that John did not stop here. I'm so thankful that John did not stop at saying, if you wanna love God, do what he tells you. But he goes on. He has this very important addition. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. How is that possible? How is it possible that God's commandments are not burdensome? Well, it's possible because of the new birth. You see, the child of God now has a fundamentally different orientation to the commandments of God. Where a person once saw burden, they now see blessing. And where a person once saw constraint, they now see freedom. And that's what John has been getting at the entire book in 1 John. That's what he's been getting at. And Jesus gets at this too. Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, John has been telling us the whole time that the world will find God's commands burdensome because the world's very orientation is towards self. The world will always find God's commandments burdensome. You see, in the scriptures, the children of God find sin burdensome. Sin is what we want to cast off. Sin is what we want to get rid of. And righteousness is freedom to us. But those of the world, to them, sin is freedom. And the commandments and righteousness of God, that's a burden. But John is saying, when you have been born of God and you believe Jesus is the Christ, your orientation to God's commandments are completely different. You now see blessing. You now see freedom. You now see beauty. Whereas before, you saw constraint and slavery and boredom. 
John says, those who are born of God have overcome the world. So let's keep reading. It's not just that they're not burdensome, but there's a reason why they're no longer burdensome. Verse four, the word because here, because or for. Why is it that his commands are not burdensome? Because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This all matters to John. He's all connecting this. And this is how it works together. John is saying that all who have been born of God overcome the world. What he's saying is there was something before you were born of God, something in the world that was keeping you from seeing God's commands as beautiful. And now there's something in the new birth that allows you to break free from the world and now you are not blinded. Now you see God's commandments as beautiful. So what specifically does John have in mind in the world that was keeping you from seeing God's commands as beautiful? He tells us what it is in 1 John 2. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world because what happens when you love something? You obey it. That's what happens. That's biblical logic. When you love something, you obey that thing. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, he names them, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What's the connection between the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life? I think there's many, but here's one. The first two these desires that are in us that come from the world, there are things that we want so bad and they're so high up in the order of our affections that we will do anything to get them, anything. And if we are so focused on getting these desires, desires are not bad, but desires that are twisted by the world, directed away from God, that's what he's talking about. And when we have those desires and the world is impressing upon us, we will do everything to get those things. And when we're seeking to get those things, we cannot love God or our neighbor because they might get in the way. So that could be things like physical things. It could be money. So it could be a house. It could be a car. But oftentimes it's prestige. It's a reputation. It's a title. It's a position. It's something that you have in your mind that you think once I attain this, I'll be fine. I'll be comfortable. Once I get here, everything will be okay. But you see, it's not just the striving for those things that John says distracts you from loving people. It's not just those things, the the desire for things. It's also when you have them. It's also when you have them. So it's both and. So let's say you strive and you strive and you strive and you get those things. You get the title. You get everything you wanted. And then you have it. Well, the influence of the world would say, now you have the pride of life. Now you have those things. You can sit and be merry. And if, ever, if anyone else tried hard enough, they could get it too. If anyone else wanted it bad enough, they could do it. Both realities, desiring or having with pride, are of the world and they will blind you from loving God and they will blind you from therefore loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because all of that is directing you towards self. So I would just ask the question, what influence from the world is distracting you from growing in this double love? What influence right now in your life is distracting you? Because I'm assuming, John's assuming, that the people he's writing to are Christians. So I'm speaking to Christians. 
people who are born again, people who have faith, people who are growing, there's something in our lives that's distracting us. What is that thing? What is it? So John says there is the first result of the new birth, and that is a double love. Love for God and love for people are connected in that when we obey God's commandments, because now we have a new orientation to them, we want them. And let me just say this. You always do what you want. You know that, right? You always do what you want at some level. And so this new orientation to the law of God actually makes us want to love him, obey his commandments, and therefore love our neighbor. So the first double love of the new birth is love for God and siblings. And now, lastly, the single hope of the new birth. So we've almost made it all the way through all the verses. So what do we have left? Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Victory, same word as overcome. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse five, and who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So that's rhetorical. No one, no one overcomes the world. But if you can overcome death, you can overcome anything. That's an implication. But I don't want us to fall into a trap here in verse four and five. And I think it's possible based on my original fear that we all tend sometimes, well, I think, Oftentimes, we, the inertia of our life is to make Christianity into a self-improvement project, right? I said that was our inertia. I was concerned about that at the beginning. Well, I don't want that to happen here in verse 4 and 5. So John concludes the passage with the statement that in order for any of the things that we've talked about today, in order, of any, in order for any of the things that John's talked about in his letter, for them to happen, we must overcome the world. Why? Because the world will trap you. And if you are loving the world, you cannot obey God. That's what we just talked about. Those three things, the desires and the pride. So we have to overcome the world. And I think we can look at this and we can say, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then we think, man, Damien asked me to think about what was distracting me. And this is distracting me. What do I do about that? And then we think, man, I guess if I just had more faith. Right? Here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with understanding it that way. I have this garden. And um, sometimes the fruit or whatever's being born on that branch, it's starting to get eaten or there's pests uh, or there's something wrong with it. It doesn't look quite healthy. And so what do I do? Well, sometimes I spray it and scrub it off. And then I'm confused why that doesn't work. Well, I'm cleaning this off. I'm cleaning the fruit off. But guess what? The soil, the water is dirty. It doesn't have the nutrients that it needs. And it took me a while to realize the problem is there. And when I take care of the soil, the root, and I focus on that, all of a sudden the fruit gets pretty healthy, right? But if I just clean the fruit, it doesn't work. So here's how it ties in. If you and I focus on the strength of our faith and try to clean that up, we will continue to go to despair. But if we look and dwell and focus on the root of our faith, on the object of our faith, we will continue to grow and be transformed and grow in this double love. And the single hope is not our faith, but we have it up there. It's believing 
Okay, what is it? There it is. The victor who has overcome the world. That is the single hope. Not your faith's victory, but the victor that has overcome the world. So what happens when you don't always see God's commandments as wonderful and they actually feel burdensome sometimes? What are you gonna do then? And besides that, what is it actually that overcomes the world? Do you notice here in verse four at the end, he says, this has overcome the world, our faith. That's a noun, okay? What's a noun? Person, place, or thing, right? All the other times in his gospel and in any of his letters, John uses the verb. He uses the noun one time in all of his writings in the New Testament, and it's right here. He doesn't say, and this is what has overcome the world, our believing. He says, this is what has overcome the world, our faith. By implication, our faith is Jesus. More directly, look at verse one. What is the content of our faith? Verse one, everyone who believes that, you see, there's content. Everyone who believes that, Jesus is the Christ. You see, believing Jesus is the Christ is not an article of our faith. It is our faith. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is not an article. It is our faith. And that is the faith that is gifted to us in the new birth. And that is the faith that overcomes the world. And so in order to grow, we don't focus on our faith. We focus on the object of our faith. And as we focus on the trustworthiness of that thing, of that person in this case, it does strengthen our faith. But we cannot get the order out of place. We cannot get the emphasis wrong. John would not have us look to the strength of our believing, but he would have us look to the object of our believing. And that will strengthen our believing. Now I want to end this way. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I'm not gonna read from anywhere else except 1 John. And this is what I'm talking about when I say the entire book came together for me this week. Everything came together. In 1 John, to believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe that he is God. Chapter one, verses one through three. To believe he is the Christ is to believe in the power of his death to cleanse from all sin, even that sin in your life that you think will keep you from God, even that sin. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe in the power of his death to cleanse from all sin, chapter one, verse seven. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe that Jesus averts the righteous wrath of God away from us, chapter two, verses two. It means we believe the love of God is expressed in its fullest measure by the cross of Christ, chapter four, verses nine and 10. And it means that we believe eternal life is experienced only by a faith union with him, which is produced by grace of the new birth, appropriated by faith, chapter five. That is the faith, that is our single hope. That is what will produce an increasing double love for God and for brother. And that's our hope this week. That's our hope now. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus the Christ. If that baby was not the only son of God, we have no hope. But because that baby was the only son of God, And the risen king who comes back is the Christ. 
we have hope. That is your faith, Christian. Let's pray. Father, you gave us your only son and your son is the creator king of the entire universe. Your son experienced a new birth when he was born into the world. He already existed forever with you. And he was born into this world, took on flesh as a baby, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, lived a perfect sinless life on our behalf and then died on the rugged cross for our salvation. He was your lamb who was slain for us. And he's the king. He's the Christ. And he is our faith. I pray that believing Jesus, believing that you are the Christ would not just be a part of our faith, but it would be the center of our faith, that it would be the hope of our lives as we celebrate you day in and day out. Strengthen us. Help us not try to detangle the braid that you have weaved through your servant, John. Help us see that the new birth is what brings it all together. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you that you have now relieved the burden of your law, but more importantly, you've done that and you've relieved the burden of sin. And now we love you in a way we couldn't have if you would not have pursued us. So change us, encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.